Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Thursday marked six months since the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, about 20 miles south of Youngstown. On the anniversary, I talked with Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw. That's coming up in a moment. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend presents information about the two upcoming issues to be decided on the November ballot, abortion rights and recreational marijuana. The group pushing the marijuana issue turned in a second batch of signatures in an effort to meet the threshold. They needed fewer than 700 more and turned in nearly 10 times that amount to go with the 123,000 valid signatures turned in 10 days before. So it appears they'll get the question on the ballot. Unlike the abortion rights issue, this will not be a constitutional amendment. So regardless of what happens in Tuesday's special election, a marijuana vote in November would need a simple majority, not 60 percent, to be approved. Tracy also has a segment about the period project at Ohio State University, helping female students afford menstruation products. And another segment about a push to have adult changing tables more readily available in public places. And in about 45 minutes, I'll talk with Nate Toops from Directions for Youth and Families about children and resiliency as we near the ringing of school bells again. First up on Columbus Perspective, six months ago, that toxic train derailed in East Palestine, south of Youngstown, right on the Pennsylvania border. Cleanup of contaminated soil continues from the spilling and burning of vinyl chloride and the water dumped on the site by fire departments. Thursday was that six-month anniversary, and on that day, I talked with Alan Shaw, CEO of Norfolk Southern. Alan Shaw, who is the CEO of Norfolk Southern, how are you? Dave, I'm well. It's good to be with you today. Thank you. Thanks for talking to us. We're talking on August 3rd, which is the six-month anniversary of the train derailment in East Palestine. What do you have to say six months later? What are your thoughts at this time? Well, I'm here in the community now. Uh, I was here on Saturday, and I, you know, Dave, I was here in the immediate aftermath, and I've been back almost every week since. And it's really the purpose of my visits is twofold. It's to check on our progress, and it's also to sit down and talk to the community about what Norfolk Southern can do to help the community recover and help the community thrive. So I've been in the churches, I've been in the schools, I've been in the folks' homes, and I've been in the businesses and just walking the streets. and. I'm proud of the progress that we've made. You know, we've uh, we continue to progress the environmental remediation. We've moved about 85,000 tons of soil off-site and about 27 million gallons of water. But there's more work to be done. That's clear. Uh, we've committed 65 million dollars to the community to help their community recover and help the community thrive. And there's more work to be done. And in fact, later today, I'll be sitting down with about 16 business leaders to get more input from them about how Norfolk Southern can invest in the long-term economic growth of the community. And I think it's having results. You know, the the Cincinnati Inquirer just had a a story in which it quoted people talking about moving into the community and opening up businesses here because they've got a lot of confidence in the long-term growth prospects of East Palestine. You mentioned uh, that the cleanup has been extensive and continues. What about the status of water and soil testing, and how long will that need to go on, that type of thing? You know, we're working under the direction of the Ohio EPA and the U.S. EPA, and um, every test has come back, millions of data points, saying that the air is safe to breathe and the water is safe to drink, 
and we're going to continue to test as uh, as long as the EPA and the Ohio EPA desires. Once uh, all the cleanup is done, will virtually all the soil from that area where where the chemicals came in contact or you know the residuals of it will it be gone or what? Yes, we're moving it off site to. Uh, EPA-approved landfills that are specifically designed to handle this type of product and, you know, have been in operation for decades. The material that seeped into the soil, is it possible that water testing is clear right now because it just hasn't had a chance to seep deep enough to affect water? Well, that's that's why we're working under the um, direction of the EPA, and we're also continuing to do soil testing as well. Talking with uh, Alan Shaw, he's the CEO of Norfolk Southern. Some folks in the community are still saying they feel the effects of it. They're also concerned about property values and whether if they were to sell their home, whether they'd get a fair value for it. How much is Norfolk Southern involved in that? Quite a bit. You know, as I sit down and talk to folks, um, Dave, it's, you know, I hear three things, right? It's the long-term water monitoring, which you just referenced. It's property valuation, and it's it's long-term health care. And so we're working directly with the attorneys general of Ohio and Pennsylvania, as well as other key stakeholders to set up long-term funds um, to address all three of those issues. Now, I'll tell you, if anybody decides that they want to move out right now, and they take a loss on their property relative to where it was before the derailment, then we'll cover that right now through the Family Assistance Center. But right now we're seeing rental rates actually increase in the community. In your uh, most recent quarter, uh, you reported that it was about $800 million now that the company has spent as, as a result of this derailment. Is that right? Well, that's uh, that's what we're accruing. That's our estimate of the total cost that's what we have visibility into right now and is probable and estimable, you know, it's um, that that's subject to change and it could change with um, with recoveries from insurance companies and third parties. I wanted to ask about you personally. It's clear that you've spent an awful lot of time uh, in East Palestine and, and have expressed an awful lot of concern about it. I know that you personally were involved in a scholarship fund for the high school there. Can you talk a little bit about your connection to the community since this has happened? Yeah, um, as I know, I'm here today. I was here uh, last week or on Saturday. And, you know, as I as I continue to engage with the community, I've made a lot of friends here. Um, and I have, I feel a responsibility to do the right thing. And, you know, as you sit down in the seat as the CEO, you realize it's all about accountability. And I feel really accountable to our customers, our employees, and the communities that we serve. And so when this happened, I pulled my team together and I said, look, we're, we're going to follow Norfolk Southern's North Star. Um, I'd become CEO about eight months before, and we'd already outlined a new vision for NS that is all about serving the long-term best interests of our customers, employees, and our communities. And I said, we're going to do more than less. And we're going to be personally involved. And so that's one of the reasons I try to come up here almost every week. And we've got 300 NS employees um, and contractors who are here almost every day working on the environmental remediation and the economic recovery. And, Dave, when they go home, I find they want to come back. And I've found 
some NS employees have cut their vacation short. And that tells me two things. It tells me they know that NS is having a positive impact on the community and the community's having a positive impact on Norfolk Southern. So my personal involvement is just a component of that. You know, there's the financial commitment's important. It's also the personal involvement. And, you know, when I, I awarded um, or established a scholarship for, um, for students graduated from East Palestine with a personal donation of about $445,000. And one of the scholarship award winners reached out to me afterwards and wanted to meet. So the next Saturday that I was up here, we met. And then he's, he's someone who's going to go um, learn business in college. And he said he wanted to shadow me. So I, uh, I took him up to Detroit. I didn't want to take him to the office, right? That's no fun. It's much more fun to get out on the ground on the railroad. So he and I went up to Detroit, and we met with customers. We met with train crews. We met with people working on the tracks. And so, again, that's that's part of that personal commitment and involvement and, you know, paying it forward to the community and investing your own personal time in the community. Just a, a couple of minutes to go with Alan Shaw, CEO of Norfolk Southern. Safety issues, uh, you know, you mentioned doing the right thing, but that – in itself is a controversial comment for some, including union workers within your company. The rail safety bill in Congress is still uh, stalled and, and under debate. What is your take on what's going to happen with some of these regulations? You know, Dave, what you've seen me do is step in front of the rest of the industry on this. And I've been in Washington's, Washington, D.C. multiple times, engaged on the Hill with our elected officials from both parts or both sides of the aisle, pardon me, um, advocating for bipartisan reg- regulation to enhance safety in the rail industry. And look, the NTSB's preliminary report showed that the NS train crew did everything they were supposed to do. The wayside detectors were operating the way they were supposed to. There were no track defects. And they're really focused on a, a catastrophic mechanical failure of a car that had been on three other railroads before it touched Norfolk Southern and isn't owned by any railroad. It's owned by one of our customers. So that tells me we need an industry-wide response. Now, I'm not waiting. And so we implemented a six-point safety plan. Um, I reached out to a retired admiral who used to run the Navy nuclear propulsion systems, and I asked him to become an independent consultant, report directly to me, and put together a team of former admirals and, and folks who have Navy nuke experience and spend two or three years on our property helping us enhance our safety culture. The Navy nuke program is the gold standard of safety across the world, and Norfolk Southern will be the gold standard of safety in the rail industry. You uh, made a change after a, a coal train in Virginia derailed, and it was caused by an overheating wheel bearing, similar to what happened in East Palestine, I guess. And you made some more cautious changes, slowing trains down when the bearing has overheated but not failed, and check it more often. Some folks were wondering why you didn't do that right after what happened in East Palestine. Look, we're a, we're a humble organization, and we're always learning. We're always looking to get better. We're always reviewing our processes, and that's we're going to continue to get better. Norfolk Southern is a safe railroad. The number of derailments on NS last year was the lowest in two decades, and the mainline accidents on Norfolk Southern this year are significantly improved um, from last year, and we're going to continue to get better. 
And last question, kind of looking into the future, Alan, what about what are trains going to look like in 50 years from now? Will they be basically the same? Will they go faster, slower? Will the containers look different and be made differently or what? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, what I'm really focused in is is competing with truck and pulling trucks off the highway because, look, rail is much safer than truck on handling hazardous materials. Um, rail is much more sustainable than truck. Rail offers a capacity advantage for truck. And so what we're focused on at Norfolk Southern is a new vision for safely providing exceptional service and um, pulling trucks off the highway. There's a great opportunity there to help the U.S. economy and help the environment by pulling more trucks off the highway and putting them on Norfolk Southern. Alan Shaw, CEO, Norfolk Southern. Anything else you'd like to add? You know, we're, um, I'm here today. I'm going to keep coming back, and the NS team will, will continue to be here. We're buying property, which underscores our long-term commitment to the community, and we're going to see this through. Uh, Alan, thanks so much for your time. Sure appreciate you taking the time for us today. Dave, it was my pleasure. Thank you, sir. The strength of our country hasn't just been won on the battlefield. It's won every day in our communities when we come together in our toughest times. For over 100 years, the American Legion has been strengthening communities across our nation by providing life-saving help and support to our veterans and neighbors during times like we're facing today. We are the American Legion, veterans strengthening America. To learn how you can help, visit legion.org. Crispy, faded, lit, baked, toasty, stoned, blazed, zooted. When you're high, there are a lot of ways to say it. But there's only one thing you need to remember. Driving under the influence of marijuana is illegal everywhere. If you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Jim at a party. Dude, pass it. Hi there. This is Jim making nachos. Hi there. This is Jim watching his favorite horror movie. Oh yeah, definitely hi there. And this is Jim driving his car. Dude, not hi there. Jim's making good decisions and not getting behind the wheel when he's high because he knows that if you feel different, you drive different. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS10TV, here's Tracy Townsend. From her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. This morning, we are learning about the future of two major issues in our state, abortion and marijuana. The battle for abortion will head to the ballot box in November. The Ohio Secretary of State's office certified a petition to make an amendment to the state's constitution to keep abortion legal in Ohio. But opponents want to get ahead of all of this by trying to change the threshold for an amendment to be made in a special election. 10TV's Tara Jabor spoke with people on both sides of the issue. In this segment, Tara Jabor is talking with Kelly Copeland, Executive Director of Pro-Choice Ohio, and Mike Ganadakis, President of Ohio Right to Life. 
Pro-choice advocates are feeling confident now that their issue will officially be on the ballot in November. So hopeful um, that we won't have to return to where we were a year ago when Ohioans were having to flee Ohio to access abortion care. Copeland says it's about women being in charge of their reproductive health care. We got signatures from people in all 88 counties of Ohio, every corner of this state, saying, yes, I want a chance to vote on this. And all of the polls are showing that the vast majority of Ohioans, regardless of how they feel about abortion, really feel that the decision, the person who decides, should be the person who's pregnant. Copeland says for her, it's personal. It's about her daughters and the future of their health care decisions. What would their future look like if they had a pregnancy complication or if they were pregnant when they weren't ready to bring a child into this world? Pro-life advocates tell me that less than 500,000 Ohioans think this is a good idea moving forward. We feel really good about our chances. Gonadakis says this issue shouldn't be on the ballot. Divisive issues don't belong in our state constitution. That's why we have a legislature. That's why we elect Democrats and Republicans to the state house and we hold them accountable. He believes issue one will protect the constitution and shut down this amendment. If issue one passes, any change to the constitution will need 60 percent of voters to pass. Regardless of the zip code you live in, regardless of your socioeconomic stand- standards, everyone has the foundational right to life and live and fulfill their God-given potential. Tara Jabor, 10TV News. The exact language for this constitutional amendment is still being worked out. That's going to be determined by the ballot board. However, Ohioans for Reproductive Freedom did submit the language they say they hope to see. Still unclear if Ohioans will vote on legalizing recreational use of marijuana come November. This week, 10TV's Lindsay Mills heard from both sides. The coalition to regulate marijuana like alcohol is confident they can pull it off. Supporters of legalized recreational use of marijuana say it's about generating tax revenue and regulation. Regulated markets are better than unregulated markets. And right now, Ohio has an adult use market. It's called the illicit market. It's completely unregulated. Those who oppose the measure say it's about safety. We know that marijuana creates impairment. It creates, um, you know, impairment in memory and attention, decision making and risk taking. And that's um, that's a danger to the public good. Ohio would become the 24th state to legalize recreational use of marijuana. Jessica Wolf is visiting from the state of Delaware, where recreational use was just passed. It's just like having a glass of wine at night. Um, I think that's the biggest misperception, right, is that people think it's this, like, hardcore drug, and it just isn't. Under the plan, a 10% tax would support administrative costs. It would go to municipalities that have dispensaries, and it would go to addiction treatment programs. In downtown Columbus, Lindsay Mills, 10TV News. And you can learn more about all of these issues, along with issue one, at 10TV.com. Also, make sure you have the free 10TV app before the election. That way you will get push alerts about the results. Again, that app is free in your app store. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost is now reacting to that Circleville body camera video of a canine being released on a semi-truck driver. The Attorney General's office released Officer Ryan Speakman's training record from the Ohio Peace Officer Training Academy. And as 10TV's Lacey Crisp explains, Yost makes it very clear Speakman did not follow his training. Come to me! Come to me! In this body-worn camera video from a Pickaway County Sheriff's deputy, troopers move closer to Jadarius Rose. 
Troopers say they were trying to inspect the truck for a missing mud flap, but he kept driving. Rose called 911 dispatchers, saying he felt unsafe before pulling over. As he gets out of the truck, officers yell at him different commands. Get down on the ground. Get down on the ground. He's not answering me now. Come to me! Come to me! Come to me! I will not hurt you! Come to me! A few moments later, you can see Circleville police officers arrive. Ready to buy Circleville to stop there. There's fields of fire. Attorney General David Yost says, First of all, I don't think the dog should have even been out of the car at that point. Uh, if the dog was out of the car, it should have been on a lead. Um, and, of course, uh, the, the dog should not have been set loose. So uh, this is uh, very troubling. Yost says the body-worn camera video is very troubling. Is it concerning to you that the Ohio State Highway Patrol troopers were telling the Circleville police officer, do not deploy the dog, do not deploy the dog, and yet after those instructions, he continued to let the dog loose? Yeah, so the investigation is still ongoing, so we, we should make sure that we know what all the facts are. Circleville police terminated Officer Speakman effective immediately. In a letter from the department, police say a use of force review board determined the department's policy for use of canines was followed, but the department determined Officer Speakman's actions did not meet the standards and expectations for its officers. Do you agree with uh, Circleville uh, Police Department's decision to fire the officer? Well, without having seen the results of the full investigation, certainly the, the video records would support their decision. That was 10TV's Lacey Crisp reporting. The police union that represents the Circleville police officer at the center of the incident is filing a grievance. They argue the officer was fired without cause. An Ohio high school student is being honored for helping stop a possible mass shooting. Casey Orlowski received two awards at the Ohio School Safety Summit. Authorities say back in April, Orlowski noticed a bullet in one of the restrooms at West Geauga High School and alerted a school resource officer. Another student's book bag was searched and a gun and three fully loaded magazines were found. These awards are not won. There are no winners. I wish for the day when these awards are no longer handed out, when we can all go to school without the constant threat of violence or bullying and just learn or teach like we're supposed to. Arlowski was awarded the inaugural National Student Hero Award from the Uvalde Foundation for Kids and the Safety Standout Award by the Ohio Student Safety Advisory Council and Governor Mike DeWine. The state Supreme Court has made a decision about the Reagan-Tokes Act, what the legislation does, and why it was before the state's highest court. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. What is dedication? The thing that drives me every day as a dad is Darian. We call him uh, Day Day for short. Every day he's hungry for something, whether it's attention, affection, knowledge. And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that when he's no longer under my wing, that he's a good person. I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. 
the craziest thing was believing that your dad knew everything. So as a dad, you felt like you had to know everything. You had to get everything right. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as it's coming from love, then, you know, it kind of starts to work itself out. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. We have an update to a story that 10 investigates has followed. The Ohio Supreme Court has ruled the Reagan-Tokes Act is constitutional. The legislation changes how ex-prisoners re-enter society and are monitored by parole officers once they leave prison. In a 5-2 decision last week, the state's highest court found that it does not violate the constitutional rights of inmates. The law was passed in 2019 and named after... 21-year-old Ohio State senior who was killed in February 2017. Reagan Tokes was kidnapped, raped, and shot to death by Brian Goldsby. Goldsby was a convicted sex offender who had recently been released from prison months before the murder. 10 Investigates exposed several examples of the state's inability to closely monitor violent ex-offenders, which helped lead to this change. If you have something the 10 Investigates team should look into... Tell us about it by emailing us at 10investigates at 10tv.com. A reminder, several benefits from the COVID-19 era are set to expire this fall. About 28 million people will have to start paying their monthly student loans again. Payments have been frozen since March of 2020, but again, they are set to resume in October. Also, about 500,000 people could lose access to food stamps when work requirements for that benefit resume in October. Remember, continuous Medicaid coverage already ended back on April 1st, but states are still reviewing eligibility. Some new data is shining a spotlight on the rising rate of poverty in our state. We dug into a new report from the Ohio Association of Community Action Agencies, and it shows a family of two adults and two school-aged children in Franklin County needs to make an annual income of nearly $72,000 to be self-sufficient. A lot of people don't make that income, which prompts them to look for affordable housing. But the process to get approved for it is not easy. It can be a real struggle. You know, we see community members wait anywhere from six to nine to 12 months from stating they're interested in possibly looking at entering housing to actually then moving out of street homelessness into housing. Experts say affordable housing in central Ohio is their biggest challenge so far. There are efforts to change that, including the Affordable Housing Trust, which works to facilitate housing development by investment through nonprofit and for-profit developers. We've done some reporting on that, and you can find that uh, on earlier editions of Face the State at 10TV.com. All right, girls, going back to school this fall will find something new. It's part of a nationwide push to make sure these teens don't miss class because they cannot get access to a menstrual product. The statewide budget is meeting a lot of needs in our state, including one we don't really talk about that much. Periods. $5 million is being allocated for free period products in Ohio schools this school year, all thanks to the help of two Ohio State University students. Here's 10TV's Gabriela Garcia. First-year med student Anusha Singh has always felt a stigma around menstruation. I remember leaving my fifth grade classroom where we learned about periods for the first time and our teacher is instructing us to be hush-hush about what we learned about. 
after really questioning that stigma, founding the Period Project's OSU chapter, Thank you for showing up. and becoming a TED contributor, this is a matter of human dignity. She partnered with her fellow Buckeyes to make sure students who menstruate don't have to miss class because they can't afford pads or tampons. We started really turning up the heat, sending a lot of emails, making sure that we were especially engaging with staff. Ella Roxy's the vice president of the period project at OSU. She helped spearhead talks with lawmakers in the Ohio Senate. And to her surprise... No. It was incredibly bipartisan, and that was always something that I felt really strongly about. This really shouldn't be a partisan issue. It should just be a human rights issue. It should not be scandalous or deeply political. It should just be something that we focus on because our women and girls deserve to stay in school. $5 million for my little sister who's going into high school. Now, That's girls crazy. across Ohio in 6th through 12th grades are getting a better chance at succeeding in school. Schools in the state will get $2 million for period product dispensers and $3 million for the products themselves. They say it's a step in the right direction. Students should be able to achieve their full potential regardless of a natural need. With more work ahead. Gabriela Garcia, 10TV News. Ella and Anusha's next step is talking with as many school districts as they can to make sure the period products are actually put into the bathrooms and not nurses' offices, as they often are. This entire effort is about accessibility. And oh, by the way, did you hear they said it was bipartisan approval? All right, the Senate is considering a bill to make the Internet safer for kids. Brandon Lewis from our National Verify team looks into the claims that this bill would require adults to give up some of their privacy. A viral TikTok claims that Kids Online Safety Act would require adults to upload their license to use the Internet. All these companies are going to have to keep a database of all their users to prove that everyone looking at these controversial topics are over 18. So how are they going to do that? They're going to collect your driver's license. A viewer tagged us on TikTok wondering if this is true. So let's verify. Would the Kids Online Safety Act require people to upload their driver's license before posting online? Our sources are the Kids Online Safety Act and Mark McCarthy, a tech policy expert at the Brookings Institution. The bill's authors say the goal is to require social media companies to better protect kids by mandating the platforms provide tools for parents, limit advertising, and secure kids' data. One section of the bill does direct the National Institute of Standards and Technology to study possible age verification systems for online platforms, but it neither mandates any of these systems nor does it require users to upload their IDs. McCarthy tells Verify the legislation only requires reasonable efforts to identify minors and does not require any specific method to be used. So, no, the Kids Online Safety Act does not require people to upload their driver's licenses before posting online. However, the bill does not stop social media companies from deciding on their own to require IDs in the future. With your Verify, I'm Brandon Lewis. What can we verify for you? Reach out to us on social media or through email. Of course, we'd love to hear from you. It's the season for new beginnings as kids just about everywhere head back to school. But for some of them, problems of the previous school year can cause stress about the future one. A study released earlier in the week from the On Our Sleeves movement for children's mental health reveals 71 percent of U.S. parents say their children had challenges last school year. Safety concerns academics and bullying are among the top three. We are certainly experiencing some high temperatures in central Ohio. Coming up, how the Biden administration says it's going to cool things down. That's next.
Between business life, social life, and her best bud, Loki, Beverly has a lot to focus on, especially while fighting Stargard, a blinding retinal disease. But she's not fighting alone. For 50 years, the Foundation Fighting Blindness has funded research into treatments and cures for blinding retinal diseases, providing hope to people with vision loss. And for Beverly, winning the fight means focusing on what's closest to her. The Foundation Fighting Blindness. Together, we're winning. Help us end blinding diseases at fightingblindness.org. Science is not an opinion. People come before pipelines. It's not too late to act on climate. No one is above the law. At Earth Justice, we hold these beliefs to be self-evident. As a national legal nonprofit fighting for your right to a healthy environment, we are 150-plus lawyers representing clients free of charge because now, more than ever, the Earth needs a good lawyer. No one fights more cases on the environment than Earth Justice. And we win because these are fights we cannot lose. We win for scientists so they can serve at the EPA. We win at the Supreme Court because clean water is for everyone. We win against fossil fuel plants so communities can breathe freely. If you believe what we believe, then help us fight the good fight and help us keep winning by going to earthjustice.org today. That's earthjustice.org. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. It's extreme heat can take an extreme toll on the power grid. Last year, storms caused damage to high-voltage transmission lines, which were already in need of repair. Additionally, high temperatures added stress on the grid, prompting AEP Ohio to intentionally cut off power to thousands to prevent further damage and longer blackouts. Well, earlier this month, the White House spoke with us about some new initiatives and funding to help in situations like these. The accountability actually has to come from both ways. It's got to come from the ground up. So we're informing people that as a matter of formula funding, we're sending this right to the state. The state then has to work with the county leaders, the mayors, the community providers to get this money into places that actually have community benefits. And so there's going to have to be accountability from us down to them to make sure it got spent the right way. The Biden administration says this funding will help make the grid stronger within the next few years. Advocates for those with disabilities are hoping a new law in Minnesota taking effect in January, requiring new public buildings to have adult changing tables, will serve as an example for lawmakers here in Ohio. Families with disabled children or adults in central Ohio are fighting for a safe and dignified place to change their loved ones, too. Here's 10TV's Yolanda Harris. 
You're doing so great. You may not think twice about taking your kids shopping. We'll go see the basketball. Out to eat or to the local YMCA. We'll see the basketball. But for Melody Bogan, taking her son anywhere requires planning. It takes a lot of foresight because I am aware that there aren't a lot of available changing tables. Her 16-year-old son, Alan, is autistic and has Down syndrome. He isn't able to go to the bathroom on his own. All right, here we go. For her, a changing station for babies or toddlers won't help. Alan weighs 150 pounds. So for our family, I'm prepared that when we go out, it usually needs to be a short stint because I need to be within a 20-minute radius of home. Kim Bolter has a similar story. Story, she faces the same challenges when it comes to taking her son out for the day. Everyone needs to use the restroom, usually when they're away from home, especially if they're gone for any length of time longer than an hour. So not being able to find a place to change him and take care of him or change his clothes if needed is really a big barrier to being able to go and participate and have fun in our community. These families would like to see legislation in Ohio similar to what recently passed in Minnesota. A law taking effect in January requires requires new public buildings to have adult changing stations. It also provides up to $20,000 in incentives for businesses to update their existing restrooms. Honestly, Yolanda, I believe it's just a sense of awareness. We don't know what we don't know. Advocates took their concerns to Columbus City Council earlier this year. They say the lack of adult changing tables is a community issue. This is not a quick you know, fixed solution. You know, I, I wish it was because I, you know, in talking with some of these folks, I understand how how hard this must be to not have this kind of infrastructure in place to take care of their, their family members. City Council President Pro Tem Rob Doran says that until recently, this issue was not on their radar. Now that it is, he's committed to addressing the problem. Yeah, we're taking a hard look at what we can do internally at the city uh, when we bring new public-facing buildings online, and then having some conversations with other partners out in the community when they do that as well. We've found out as we do more research on this, it's much easier to sort of install on the front end when a new building is constructed. And as older buildings get renovated, Doran says that could be another opportunity to add them. But only time will tell. I'm confident that when it comes to changing tables, it's a common sense thing to do. I really believe our city council and our government will do the right thing. Yolanda Harris, 10TV News. The next point of contact for these advocates is Governor Mike DeWine's office, and they'd like to see adult changing tables installed in all rest areas and welcome centers in the state of Ohio. They say this is not a luxury, it's a necessity because it's a basic human right to be able to use the restroom with dignity. The Lincoln Theater Association had its annual Walk of Fame induction ceremony. There are two new names being added to memorialize a pair of community leaders whose contributions to Columbus through their professional careers helped create the firm foundation of our city. One of them is 97-year-old Leon L. Troy Sr. I talk with the Trailblazers' sons who say he's dad to them, but a difference maker to many. The Reverend Leon Troy Sr.'s life tells a story in pictures about family and friends, faith, and a strong foundation. His journey as a religious leader and civil rights champion is legend and captured in this video from the Ohio History Connection. That I could learn to listen to people at the same time, learn how to not just glow, but also understand 
and we got to make a difference in our world. Hmm. The Reverend is a difference maker and will be recognized for it at this year's Walk of Fame ceremony, honoring Columbus natives who have made outstanding community contributions through their professional careers. So I think Pops would be happy that the uh, value of his work uh, is certainly being recognized. He would be probably uh, amazed, Tracy, to see his name on a sidewalk, <laughs> uh, you know, to, to recognize. And it had nothing to do with a construction mm-hmm. project, right? Adam and Eric Troy are two of the five sons of Leon and Bernice Troy, representing his legacy, which includes being tapped to be part of Columbus Mayor Buck Reinhardt's administration. I still remember uh, watching him take that phone call and being asked to serve as a part of that cabinet at no pay. And he became the conscience of the Reinhardt administration. He may have been uh, one of the few guys who could say what he needed to say, speak truth to power. Uh, from the barbershop to the boardroom and not have to worry about it because he was not on anybody's payroll. Not on anyone's payroll, but honored and revered by just about everyone in the community, and especially at home as a husband and father. We forget sometimes, Tracy, of the impact of our dad. And at the tender age of 97, you know, he's his dad to us. But to Eric's point, um, having... Uh, the institution recognize him, I think gives us an opportunity to bridge, uh, hopefully a t- put, provide a tangible gap between generations, those who are, are uh, uh, have grown up virtually, mostly on what's going on in the world, uh, with uh, an individual who was actually there. The Reverend Leon Troy Sr., truly there, building timeless legacy on the foundation of faith and family. We congratulate the honorees and their families, and we thank you for joining us here today on Face the State. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Before I was adopted, I felt like nobody wanted me. I felt like my life was already over. At a certain age, they don't want you. You're troubled and stuff. Even if I wanted to be adopted, who would adopt a 17-year-old? Inside, I knew, like, I'm not a troubled kid. I know what I'm in for, why I'm here. My biggest fear was that I would age out and not know how to be sufficient on my own. I had nightmares every single day at my birth mom's house. It was just really scary for me living there. I was scared. I was lost, and I felt hopeless. I felt like, don't I deserve to feel happy and loved? I just wish I'd gotten adopted sooner. Unfortunately, the number of children waiting to be adopted from foster care is on the rise. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is the only public nonprofit charity in the U.S. focused exclusively on foster care adoption. You can help. Go to DaveThomasFoundation.org to learn more. Every two minutes, a woman in the U.S. is diagnosed with breast cancer. And in that split second, her life changes forever. The toll of breast cancer is great. The need to support those who are battling the disease today is even greater. We're fighting alongside patients because we know one moment can change a lifetime. United by hope, we can end breast cancer. Join our fight. Save lives. So many times, the lack of basic needs gets in the way of our students. Neighborhood Bridges, a local nonprofit, has developed a way to get school kids basic necessities. Visit neighborhoodbridges.org. 
and make a difference in our student lives. Find your community and subscribe. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Nate Toops, who is the Director of Community Engagement and Advocacy for Directions for Youth and Families. How are you? Doing well. How are you doing, Dave? Good. Thanks for talking to us. And before we go any further, I guess we should clarify there's nothing wrong with Dwayne other than what we all generally think of Dwayne. <laughs> He's just not with us today. So we were going to talk a little bit with you today about some of the things that we would normally talk with Dwayne about. But uh, first, I just wanted to kind of uh, get to know you a little bit more with Directions for Youth. Tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, so I've been with Directions for Youth going on 11 years. And in my first 10-plus years, I was served in the role of a clinical program manager. And in that role, I've pretty much... Um, supervise all the programs we offer at Directions. Mostly what we provide is community-based mental health services and school-based mental health services across Franklin County. Uh, we offer some early childhood programming, including kindergarten readiness, and then we run two large after-school programs on the near south side and the, here, and the east side. Okay, and one of the things that kind of sets your agency apart is that you meet them uh, on their turf or, or at a neutral spot, right? Yeah, we, we want to really eliminate those barriers to access to care. So we're providing services um, in many of the school districts here in um, Franklin County. Um, we've got some great partnerships there. And then, of course, to eliminate barriers when there's out-of-school time during summer breaks, natural breaks, or going into families' homes and other community locations to, to get eliminate those barriers to access. And when uh, Dwayne is on, he's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. Uh, we generally talk about something going on uh, in the world, and today we were going to talk with you about school starting up and the resiliency needed for kids and parents as their lives change again coming up here. Yeah, Dave, as you know, there's just a lot going on in the world, and um, starting up school, it's, it's another stressor that we're adding to kids and families' buckets. So just want to talk a little bit about resiliency. Um, you know, classically, a lot of people you ask about resiliency, and they're going to tell you that it's really about bouncing back from something negative, um, stressful, or traumatic that's happened. Um, and that's, that's really a correct statement, um, but it's a little more nuanced to that. I really like to use the definition from Resiliency Ohio, um, from the Center for Innovative Practices, Case Western Reserve University, and they define resiliency as an inner capacity that when nurtured, facilitated, and supported by others, empowers children, youth, and families to successfully meet life's challenges with a sense of self-determination, mastery, and hope. Um, I love that definition because this thing about resiliency um, isn't just someone picking themselves up by their bootstraps, if you will. You know, we, we really need those supports, um, and, and especially our kids need supports of adult caregivers, parents, teachers, et cetera, um, and they need skills in order to be resilient in the face of all, all the things that they're dealing with. It certainly is a, an interesting and huge topic, especially, I think, well, with all kids today because, you know, who have gone through the pandemic. But if you take a kid that's like 10 years old right now, fourth grade, 
when they were seven, the pandemic hit. So that would have been at the end of first or I guess first grade. And then second grade was disrupted at the beginning of it, at least. Third grade was kind of a get back to normal thing as well as fourth grade. But you're talking about almost a third of their educational life that has been, you know, has been twisted. No question, the parents of those same kids <laughs> would say it's not just the kid that's been going through all this. Yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a parent of two teenagers, right? And I, and I see the impact on them, and, and I'm very fortunate and very lucky to have, uh, you know, a wife, a very supportive uh, family, but, but it was hard on us, too, so I can only imagine, um, and I know for a fact from many of the families um, that we see that the, the larger impacts and long-standing impacts it's had. So what are some of the, you know, as school gets ready to ramp up here again, and, and it looks like, you know, we're going to be starting off normally. I know COVID is still out there and hospitalizations have been climbing slightly, but they're nothing like they, what they've been in the past. So hopefully it'll be a normal year coming up. What sort of tools uh, should parents be using to prepare their kids and make sure they're ready? Yeah, parents and in our school professionals as well. Um, I pull this from the Mayo Clinic. They've got a great like bullet point list, a list of um, like tips to improve your resilience. Um, one of the first is is um, you, you know we sometimes forget about this, especially in our uh, lives of of kind of being involved with technology. But we we got to get connected and stay connected. So just building those strong relationships. Um, you know, in a school setting, schools can really do a great job making sure every kid feels connected to at least one adult in the building, right? Um, parents taking that time to make sure they're checking in with their kiddos and, and just how they're adjusting and coming into school and um, just opening up the, and keeping and open those lines of communication. Um, another one is just making every day meaningful. Um, so just in schools, like giving kids opportunities to feel a sense of accomplishment or purpose, um, setting small achievable goals um, if you're a parent with your kiddos so that they, again, can feel that, that sense of accomplishment. Learning from experience, you know, I think helping kids identify um, and, and, and adults just help them identify when they've been able to overcome a challenge and, and how they can use those strengths, those skills, strategies to overcome challenges they inevitably will face as the school year starts out. Remaining hopeful, um, one of the practices I really like is just gratitude, extending gratitude to others can also help instill that sense of hope in ourselves. Um, doing a little self-care, um, self-compassion, um, and that does include the things we, in our fast-paced society, we tend to forget about, having a, a consistent um, bedtime routine, getting enough sleep, nutrition, um, getting some good exercise, and, and just doing some things that help with stress management, um, especially 
about nature, getting some movement um, going on, and then just being proactive. So, you know, as parents and teachers checking in with themselves, with each other, and then with our kids, um, just to see how, how folks are doing and, and, and not waiting until something larger comes upon us. Talking with Nate Toops, he's the Director of Community Engagement and Advocacy for Directions for Youth and Families in Columbus. You know, when we as adults change jobs and, and move into a different setting, whether it's a factory or, or a, an office, the environment is different. You know, it's in one business might be more easily adaptable and welcoming to a new employee than others might be, and you never know what you're going to run into. And with kids, it's even more interesting because, you know, they deal every year with new teachers, new classmates. Everything is different, and, and I would think, in turn, that also creates a lot of uh, comings and goings in their social media contacts as well, where they might be subjected to online bullying or support and new friends. I mean, all those dynamics are just wildly different than adulthood. Yeah. Yeah, if you think back when you were a kid, and I think back when I was a kid, um, you, you know, of course we dealt with a lot of stressors, pressures, and things like going on, going on in society, but then you add in this element around social media. Um, and then just like you mentioned earlier, just the, the, the loss of socialization that the pandemic created, it's just a, it's just a soup of um, potential for, for toxicity to surround some of our kids. So, you know, again, working with parents and teachers when they're checking in with kids, also being aware, like, what sites they're checking out on social media, what are the conversations like, you know, providing some, some age-appropriate supervision and monitoring with, um, you know, what they're doing online is, is, is hugely important. With kids, uh, with the stresses that they face on social media, coming out of the pandemic as well, you know, some of them have been stunted somewhat anyway socially and maybe relied more on social media than they would have before. So I just think the adjustments are just tremendous that, that have had to happen in the last two or three years. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, you know, schools are an amazing place to help kids, um, reconnect with their peers and, and schools can really facilitate those more healthy connections because they've got groups the same age peers so um, I know a lot of the schools one of the practices I really really um, appreciate especially at the elementary level they do something what's called a connection circle so just getting the groups of kids together in the morning just checking in and they're sharing a little bit about themselves how they're showing up that day and there's a, a, you know, a trusted adult to just you know, I kind of coach them and how they can share and discuss things and feel supported within each other with amongst the group. And since we are talking about resiliency, I, I think, too, you know, we hear a lot of people in your type of industry that talk about how amazingly resilient kids are. And also, like in the health field, when you see these little kids in the commercials for hospitals that have cancer and how inspirational they can be to others because they are so resilient and, and the way that they can tackle some of these issues. You're absolutely right. It's amazing um, how many, how quickly kids can bounce back and how quickly they can thrive, um, but only in that context of support um, from caring and trusted adults in their life. Minus that support, boy, boy those, those things are really hard for a kid to just kind of overcome. So I just really want to emphasize, you know, and, and no matter what a kid is dealing with, if they've got adults, even if just one adult that's there for them, that's checking in with them, that's guiding them along the way, 
Blake kids can be extremely resilient, like like you just pointed out. That's a great point, though, because uh, you know these kids are not born <laughs> with with those skills. <laughs> right, they're not born with these skills. These are skills that that are learned over time, that are learned through interactions with others, learned through coaching, through modeling. Um, so yeah, no wonder the the impact of the pandemic and not having a lot of those opportunities is has stunted some of that for some of our kiddos. We just got to give them more opportunities. Talking with uh, Nate Toops, he's Director of Community Engagement and Advocacy for Directions for Youth and Families. Uh, You were the Clinical Program Manager and uh, are engaged with the community. How has uh, your agency uh, had to adapt and shift in the time during and after the pandemic? In many, many ways. um, You know, during the pandemic, we all had to quickly learn how to switch to telehealth, so providing services online. Um, that's still an option today. That's maybe the only positive thing that, that came out of the pandemic um, because we, that can increase some in access for some families. Um, but you really can't beat being in person with somebody um, and especially working with kids and families. Um, just that, that personal touch being right there with them is, is just a huge difference. Um, but, you know, we, we're, we're seeing um, more and more challenges that the kids and families are facing. Um, the, just the compounded nature of things. It's not just one big stressor, one big traumatic event. We were seeing lots of kids and families that have experienced a multitude of stressors. Um, and then just layer that on top of just the things that you're seeing. Uh, you talked about social media. I mean, kids are just being exposed to things that are going on in, in larger communities, society, and the world that are, that are stressful if you're just being bombarded with that information day in and day out. So um, give our, our workers and the workers that work in community mental health a lot, a lot of credit because they've really had to adjust on the fly and, and really had to expand their skill set to, to meet a multitude of growing needs. And some of the issues, you know, that are ever changing these days, we've seen kind of an uptick in youth violence in Columbus and elsewhere. Uh, and there's, you know, even things like, and I know that they're not legally allowed to do it, but, you know, like the, the sports gambling and all that stuff. If you've got a kid that is a big sports fan who's 16 years old who's eyeing that stuff you know that's something that a parent it would be great if they knew about that right now yeah you're right so so you know getting this information out to families but i, I want to come back to your your comment about youth violence i mean we we really see that coming out of the pandemic just the, the amount of trauma that kids and families went through and then the disconnection that they suffered as a result of some of the isolation and everything, I think that's just all really coming to roost with what we're seeing with, with some of this uptick in, in youth and just community violence, period. Um, so we talk about resilience, right? So we, we also... I'm a mental health provider. We, there's many things we can do to support families, but but we really need some changes in some of our um, policies and, and, and the ways we look at how we're addressing some of these factors. So there's, there's some big systemic challenges we still are really facing that, especially the pandemic uncovered. Nate Toops again joining us. He's the Director of Community Engagement and Advocacy. Nate, if folks want more information about your agency, Directions for Youth and Families, what do they do? Um, they can call our main line at uh, 614-294-2661 or can reach us on the web at dfyf.org. That's D as in dog, F as in family, Y as in youth, F as in family.org. 
Great. Nate, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Take care, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation to the fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.